Why choose a Sleep Number smart bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number smart bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 smart bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. You know, when parents say, when should I take my child to therapy? I say, earlier the better. You know, prevention is always key when it comes to therapy because if you wait too long before you take your child to therapy, the problem is going is just going to get worse and worse and bigger and bigger. Um, if you can, you know, see some early warning signs in your children's behavior or a, a mood, um, their mental health, then that's when you should call a therapist and say, hey, this is what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. should we come see you? And even if it's just some some preventative sessions, you don't going to therapy doesn't mean you go forever, at least with me. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctorate in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have a very special treat. We are going to flip the switch and I have someone who's going to be interviewing me. Yes, that's right. If you remember, Heather Brooker was the very first guest I had on episode one, and she is back today to celebrate my one-year podcast anniversary to interview me today. Hi, Heather. Hi, Mama. I am so proud of you, and I'm so excited to be back and talking with you. Oh, well, thank you for being here. I'm so ecstatic that I can't believe it's already been one year um, since I launched this podcast and one year since our first episode together. And I just couldn't be more excited to have you back and, and to chat with you more. Yay, me too. Me too. I have some good questions lined up. So let me know. I am ready to go. (laughs) All right, good. Well, let me just introduce you real quick. Um, If you didn't listen to episode one, please go back and listen so you get to know Heather more and more. She is a dear friend of mine and she is a wife. She's a mom. She's an entertainment reporter for NBC. She's a two-time Emmy award-winning journalist. She's a TV personality and an actress that's appeared in over 40 films and television shows. And she has her own Webby Award-winning podcast called Motherhood in Hollywood. So definitely check out episode one and check out her website. Heather, real quick, just share where we can find you so people can find more and and can follow you more too. Absolutely. I would love it if everybody would follow me on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me at the Heather Brooker and I am on TikTok and Twitter at Heather Brooker. And of course you can listen to my podcast and see the random recipes that I post occasionally, (laughs) like random (laughs) random traveling uh, that we do over on motherhoodinhollywood.com. I love it. Well, you are amazing. So I cannot wait to get this interview started and see what you have to ask me. Um, So let's go for it. Let's do this. Okay. So I, um, first of all, what an honor to have you as a guest today, Dr. Kim. No, (laughs) I'm so excited. I'm uh, I'm so excited because I have you know a lot of questions about what you do, but I also just really quickly you mentioned this is you said this is your one year podcast anniversary. That's such a huge accomplishment because a lot of people stop 
doing their podcast after a couple of months because they realized just how time intensive um, it can be. And so that, you know, kudos to you for making it to a year. It's actually a, a really wonderful accomplishment. So I want to know, sure. And I want to know, um, what have you learned from your guests over this past year? We're going to dive into some more of what you do, but I just kind of want to know, what do you feel like you have learned over this past year from your guests? Um, Anything in particular stand out in your mind? You know what? Yes. And that's a really good question. And that's why they pay me the big bucks. (laughs) You are the best interviewer I know. You really are. Um, but you know, honestly, I, I learned a lot about myself from my guests. So Hmm. that being said, you know, a lot of the people I've interviewed over the last year have been, you know, psychologists and medical experts and, you know, people that are experts in their own right. You know, I've had authors, I've had musicians. I mean, I've had, you know, a a plethora of, of of different people. I I mean, I even had the voice of Mickey Mouse, right? (laughs) He's so nice. I've had some really fun episodes, you know, but when I look back about what I've learned, I feel like I, I said, learned a lot about myself. I had a episode, um, you know, probably midway through on perfectionism and it was one of my top rated shows and because I'm a perfectionist myself, and I learned a lot about where perfectionism came from. I learned about how to identify it, how to maintain it, and maybe even how to like change it a little bit and not worry about what people think of me all the time, not worry about striving mm-hmm. to be the best all the time, you know, really just being comfortable in my own skin. Mm-hmm. And that's really helped me as a, as a woman, as a human, as a parent, as a wife. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's really, that was the episode that really stood out to me that, that really shifted me as a person, mm-hmm. um, just learning from my other guests, you know, expertise was, was really the biggest thing. Well, let's talk about that expertise a little bit. Uh, I absolutely love what you do. I am fascinated with it. It's something that I never really knew existed, honestly, until we met and you started telling me more about what you do. So. Um, you know, you've spent the last year interviewing guests and interviewing people, but let's take a second and talk about you as Dr. Kim, what a play therapist is and how do parents know when they need to take their child to one? Oh, good question. And I love this question because it really brings me to share about prevention and awareness, because I feel like, especially with so much stigma around therapy, uh, it's bad enough with adults and couples and, and family therapy. But when it comes to children and child therapy, I think a lot of times parents don't want their children to be diagnosed with something. Parents don't want a stigma around their child. They don't want them to be taken out of class and other kids asking questions. Well, where are you going? Oh, I have to go see my therapist. What's that? What's wrong with you? You know, the, there's, 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 it's just like I said, that stigma that is, I think, even worse sometimes with with children. And so, you know, when parents say, "When should I take my child to therapy?" I say, "Earlier the better." You know, prevention is always key when it comes to therapy because if you wait too long before you take your child to therapy, the problem is going is, is just going to get worse and worse and bigger and bigger. Um, if you can, you know, 
see some early warning signs in your children's behavior or uh, mood, um, their mental health, then that's when you should call a therapist and say, hey, this is what's going on. You know, mm-hmm. should we come see you? And even if it's just some some preventative sessions, you don't going to therapy doesn't mean you go forever. At least with me, I'm not the type of person that sees the clients for years on end. I usually see clients for a couple of months, give the parents the tools they need, give the children the tools they need, and then they move on with their lives. So mm-hmm. I think there's just this misconception that A, you have to be diagnosed to go to therapy, which is not true. B, you have to go to therapy for a long time. Not true. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And sure, it can cost a lot of money if you pay, you know, pay privately if you don't go through your insurance and things like that. But, um, but I think parents should seek therapy sooner than later if they're thinking about it. If there's something in their gut, you know, that mom gut we have. If there's something in there that says something's not right, call someone. Um, I, that's my biggest advice for when to go. Right. Yeah. And you, you brought up a really good point too. Um, therapy can sometimes be very expensive, especially if you're paying out of pocket. Would you recommend if there's a parent who is seeing some signs or something may feel off, like you said, and maybe they can't afford, you know, 10, 12 sessions or a year's worth of therapy or whatever, would it be worthwhile even to just have one or two visits to sort of Uh, get a foundation or get some answers? Or is it really recommended to um, try to go longer if you can? No, I would say try to get those one or two sessions in. There is so much education that I give my clients, even the first session, even just the first session alone, more or less a second or third, um, that is very beneficial, um, especially if it's more behaviorally based, you know, Mm -hmm. if a child's acting out at home or at school, um, you know, they're having trouble with managing meltdowns, you know, um, aggressiveness, anger, things like that. Um, There's so much I can teach within the first one or two sessions. And honestly, even though I'm cash pay, I I don't go through insurance companies through my private practice, um, yet I work with clients. So if a client comes to me and says, you know what, I can't afford your your regular rate, then I usually have, most therapists have a sliding scale. Um, or we go to every other week to make sure it fits in their monthly budget. So there's ways to work around it. You just have to ask. Um, and even some therapists do some of scholarship type um, therapy um, where it can be a very low rate if you're if you're going to like a nonprofit or something. Again, that's different than private practice, but there's definitely therapeutic ways out there um, to see a therapist where it, it could even cost as low as $10 um, or $20 through like a nonprofit agency that has licensed therapists there. Um, that work for them. So there's there's just a lot of options. And I feel like people just need to know them and know that those options are out there so they can, you know, a, 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 you know, go to someone that fits in their budget. And I think also, like you said, just getting over that initial stigma of asking for help and not being yes. embarrassed or ashamed or worried that you'll be rejected. Um, I, I think that is a big um, takeaway as well as for people to just feel empowered to ask for help and just honestly, just finding someone to talk to sometimes about, about whatever is going on in your life as an adult or even with your children um, can make a huge difference. Oh, hundred um, percent. And I, uh, you know, I'm, I really want to dive into this next part because, you know, I have a tween, my daughter is nine. So we're officially heading into the tween zone. And there are times when I feel like she has moments where she's very mature, um, very, you know, 
thoughtful and I'm like, oh, I can see she's going to be a real person one day. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then there are moments when she will like cry over something seemingly mundane or um, revert to something sort of childlike or whatever. And I don't know if that's very, you know, typical of the tween years. Um, I notice sometimes she has moments of entitlement and that drives me more crazy than anything that she probably does. Oh, sure. I would, I would love to know if, first of all, is this if typical of tween behavior? I know you also have a tween or is this symbolic of, um, emotional intelligence and how can we raise emotionally intelligent kids? Mm, great question. Great question. Yes, it is typical. I'll just put it right out there that yes, Yay. it is typical. Um, <laughs> Kids, kids, especially, you know, and I'll even go as far as saying that, you know, um, girls uh, and have have just a, a plethora of hormones that they're going mm -hmm. through around this, this age. Right. Uh, boys do, too. But uh, girls especially have this have these these hormone that, um, hormones that start as early as sometimes even seven years old. And, you know, it gets just stronger and stronger, the more, the more they grow and the older they get. So they're going to be flip-flopping and they're going to be struggling with these, these, these emotions that are almost attacking each other. Right. And life stages, you know, going into a new life stage um, of being a child and then being a tween and knowing what that's like and what's acceptable. And I know my daughter was playing the other day with someone and they were playing with something they always usually play play with and they've been playing you know since kindergarten together and one of the girls turned her and said oh that's that's for babies I don't want to play with that anymore oh yeah that's happening <laughs> and she's like well but we played with it like a month ago what happened you know I and, know I see that happening <laughs> right and it's just and, and then my my daughter turns to me and says well mom I'm not quite ready to to not play with this anymore and I'm like it's okay you know everyone's going to go through their own phase mm -hmm. and they're going to go through it a little bit differently and so you know, the, the great thing about, and you asked what play therapy is earlier, and I don't know if I even quite answered it, but the great thing about play therapy is that kids know what they need and kids will utilize play and things that are playful um, in ways in which to transition in ways in which to heal, whether it's a trauma or just a problem they're having, whether it's, you know, going into this tween stage from being, you know, from being a child to a tween, they will utilize, you know, toys and other things to help them through that transition, to help them through that trauma, to heal from whatever they're going through. So, um, Gary Landreth is a is a pioneer of play therapy, and he's one of my favorites. And he has this quote: "Toys are children's words, and play is their language." And I think that really sums up what mm -hmm. play therapy is. Mm -hmm. And so, when I work with kids, and you know, teaching parents and teaching children how to become emotionally intelligent, there's a couple things I focus on. One is identifying emotions. So. Anytime you experiencing an emotion, you know, we have the, the simple ones we learn when we're real, real little, right? Happy, sad, mad, angry, scared. So, but then it gets, you know, more intense as they get older, right? So maybe even your own daughter, my daughter, you know, she'll say things like, I was embarrassed today. I was confused today. I was overwhelmed today. So more emotions start coming in the older kids get. So being able to identify those emotions with your kids Number one is to be able to know what that feeling is, because if a child feels something and they don't know how to identify it, then that's where 
there a communication barrier happens between a parent and a child. So being able to to identify the emotion and label those emotions and even act them out and talk about, well, when's the last time you felt embarrassed? Or, you know, this is the last time I felt embarrassed and being vulnerable with your kids and sharing that you know how they're feeling and so they don't feel so alone and maybe shame of the emotions that they're feeling. They'll feel like, oh, okay, this is normal. What I'm going through is normal. It is typical. And even my own mom experienced it. And so I can share with her about it and makes me feel better because she knows what I'm feeling right now. I love that. That is such a great point is just like getting them to talk and verbalize and understand the words and the language to be able to communicate. That's something that Channing does fairly well. But one of my biggest fears is that as she gets older and starts relying more on her friend group, because, you know, she's an only child, she doesn't have a sister or brother to turn to, you know, to have that close confidence, confidant uh, with when because every child at some point eventually starts turning to their friends, their peer group as their um, uh, you know, what am I trying to say? Gauge of right and wrong and, you know, yes, exactly. um, confidant and to confide in and that sort of thing. So I know that that is going to come and I'm terrified. I'm terrified. Oh, so my hope is that we're laying enough of a foundation with her in the best way possible so that if she's faced with that decision in that situation with a peer group, that's maybe not giving her the best advice or, or, you know, trying to get her to do something that she shouldn't do that she knows enough to come back to us and say, Hey, what is this? Okay. Or, you know, whatever. So that's my fear. I don't trust, I trust my kid. I don't trust other people's kids. (laughs) I know that's terrible. I know that's terrible. And and like you said, set the foundation um, and then also, you know, for I, I, I mentioned this to a lot of my more teen clients, but if a child is having trouble communicating face to face, I say, you know, do daily check ins, whether it's in the car when you pick them up from school. So you're not ha- you're not having to look eye to eye and you can say, hey, how was your day? Tell me something good about your day. Tell me something that wasn't so good about your day or, you know, whatever the case is. And just keep a pulse on your child's emotions and mental health. You know, throughout the week, you can do a daily chicken every day or maybe at the dinner table if you do want to do it around the dinner table and then everyone shares. I mean, everyone's a little bit different. But for Mm -hmm. the kids that have trouble um, sharing their emotions and communicating their emotions to their parents, um, I suggest either doing it where it's not face to face and making it short and sweet. Don't make it like a prolonged, you know, lecture about anything. Um, or keeping some sort of journal where it's like a communication journal and you keep it at one place in the house and it's only you and your your tween or your teen writing some thoughts and different things back and forth to each other. Um, so you're that. still communicating, but it's not face-to-face. So there's not that pressure of your reaction in the moment. You have time to kind of marinate and then and then re- reply after you've had some time to think about it versus you know having to reply right in the moment you know, for both of you. Um, so that really helps. And if, it's, if, if a journal's too much, make it post-its. It doesn't have to be, you know, completely formal, but Mm -hmm. just a way to still keep those lines of communication open where, especially if they don't necessarily want to have that face-to-face sit-down conversation, which can be really intimidating um, for for kids and they can shut down real easily with that if if they're not comfortable in that situation. One of the most helpful things that I have started doing um, several months ago was actually shared by a friend of ours, Rosie Maxheimer. 
And Rosie said that every day, I don't know if she does it every day, but she said that she plays two truths and a lie when she picks her kids up from school. And I thought, oh, that's such a great idea. So I started doing that with Channing because she loves to play games. She loves to, you know, try to be tricky. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that, and she, you know, she thinks we're playing just like a fun game. But what it did was it started opening up far more conversations about who she was playing with what she had for lunch and you know what she didn't like, why she didn't like it, the kinds of things she was learning in school and how she felt about them. It opened up so many conversations for us. Whereas before I'd just be like, how was your day? And she'd be like, fine. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. So it's yes. that what you're saying, it's that finding a sense of play and no matter how old our kids get, you're absolutely right. Like there's that need to want to connect in some way and be playful you know, um, as I'm sure it just reminds them of being little and and playing. So yeah, I, I love that. I love those ideas. Um, okay. Let's talk about parents who are wanting to, um, like have their kids fall in line, you know, like what can we do? Uh, sometimes parents are more heavy handed with discipline. Sometimes they're not. Um, is there a way we should be navigating, um, kids with behavioral issues, uh, whether it's impulsivity, anger, aggression, how can we address those to get kids to either act the way we think they should be acting, or should we let go of all of that ideas of how we think kids should act? Oh, that's like the miracle question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, there's a couple, the couple things that come to mind when I think about that. So the first thing I usually always tell parents is to be consistent. If a child finds a loophole in your parenting, which we, we're not perfect, we are going to make mistakes, We are they are going to find loopholes, but as consistent as you can make your parenting, um, even among siblings, if you have siblings, um, as consistent as you can make things is going to be better in the long run because they're going to know that there's not much wiggle room. So they're not going to push the buttons as much, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you say you're going to give a consequence, you need to give the consequence. You can't just, you know, quote unquote, threaten one because, you know, in the moment you feel like I'm angry and so I'm going to take your iPad away, you know, for the rest mm-hmm. of the day. And you think, oh, wait, I probably shouldn't have done that or that might have, might not have been the best consequence or, or then five minutes later, you know, you're trying to get something done and you're like, oh, fine, just have the iPad, you know? know, um, that the the inconsistency will only make the behavior issues, you know, stronger or worse. So, um, there's a couple things I like to, I like to use. Um, and I think it works for toddlerhood to, to probably tweenhood, um, you know, when it comes to, you know, getting kids to listen or behave and whatnot. And like you said, going back to being play-based, you know, when you want to get your child to clean their room, and you just telling them to clean your room isn't working and you're arguing, you're having this power struggle, make it into a game. So what I do to get my kids to clean their room, I'll share this secret, um, is I play freeze, freeze clean. That's what I call it. So I put a song on that they like and I well, put it fun. on loud and it's almost like having a dance party, but they're cleaning. So every time the music is on, they clean something. They put something away in a drawer, they throw something in the hamper. And then when the music stops, they freeze right? Just like freeze dance, but they're cleaning. So, and I have never not played freeze clean and my children not have their rooms cleaned by the end of the song. Like it only takes that one song because they do it so fast because they're anticipating the freeze part that they clean like, you know, uh, just fast jackrabbits or something. You know what I mean? So, (laughs) um, So 
make things into a game. So it, it, one time I, I was struggling with a client to try and get their child to, their, the parent really wanted the child to make the bed. That was their big, you know, chore for the week was to make their bed. And they just wanted them to do just that. Right. And so we got a timer and we set the timer and we made it into a race and we said, okay, let's see how long it's going to take for you to make your bed today. And we got the timer out and you know, we timed the child and let's say it was 25 seconds and we're okay. Tomorrow you have to beat that 25 seconds. Maybe it's only 24 seconds, but you have to beat it. And so each day we tried to, you know, make the time, you know, faster. So whenever you really want your child to do something, um, you know, whether it's, especially with chores, it works great for chores is making things into a game. If you have siblings, you can kind of make it into a competition who can get it done faster or, you know, whatnot. Um, but, making it making it play-based, making it playful, um, because it does revert a child back to those playful years where they're not just being told what to do. They're not just being yelled at. They're not just being, you know, um, you know, threatened. If you don't clean your room, you'll get, you know, you can't go to this and that on Friday, you know. So those things will just create the power struggle between the parent and the child. So I always say just make it into a game as much as you can. So um, I hope that helps. <laughs> it does. It, no, it does. Because I mean, listen, I am almost 29 years old and I still <laughs> love games. <laughs> Why are you laughing so hard, Kim? Why are you laughing so hard, Dr. Kim? <laughs> well, and here's the thing. You bring up a good point though. And I say this, I say this when I teach, I say this to you know my clients, I say this to my friends, that parents forget how to play. There, we We get inhibited by our own maybe self self-consciousness that mm -hmm. we feel like embarrassed if the, if someone sees us being playful or playing we think oh that's not we have to act our age and there's kind of a stigma behind that as being playful as adults and if you see a parent playing with a young child it you know it, it somehow makes sense to to other people watching but um but if you just see i mean i do i do this even in couples therapy we'll have where i have couples play games to reconnect with each other so being playful and and play go together and i you know i see people in their 90s you know doing different games and mm -hmm. things like that mm -hmm. to keep their morale and their mental health you know um you know uh, better so it doesn't matter what age you are and i think that sometimes parents just have to let go of those inhibitions and let go of what other people are going to think about you or even what your kids might think about you and and just let go and just play with with your kids and just be playful with your kids um and, and not take everything so seriously really will help that relationship and that attachment between you and your child and i think too finding the type of play that you are most comfortable with is also important because i'm I was never the mom that was really great about getting down on the floor with my kid and um, coming up with like creative artsy craftsy things to do. It's just not a gift that I have, but I'm really good at playing, coming up with other games like like riddles or um, she loves having telling jokes. So we'll have like a joke off, you know? Um, she it. also loves, we both love video games. So we will sit there and play video games together and laugh and joke around. And like, that is our version of play yes. um, that works for us. And it took me a while to get over the guilt of feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm such a terrible mom because I don't love like laying on the floor and you know, I don't love doing arts and crafts stuff. I'm right. sound terrible. There's no shade on moms who do that because I think it's amazing. It's just not a, a gift or a talent that I have. 
Um, and by the way, I should say that part of the reason why I agreed um, to do this podcast with you is so I could get some personal advice, um, <laughs> get a personal therapy session from Dr. Kim. <laughs> so thank you for that. Little did you know, lady. <laughs> Hopefully I'm giving you some good advice, you know? Oh my um, gosh, but- such, such great advice, such great advice. Okay, well, so I mean, um, last question. Oh yeah, I was gonna say last question. So um, let's talk about some active takeaways that parents can use in their daily, weekly lives that they can um, apply to help get better behavior from their kids or um, more openness, more interactivity from their kids? Great question. And the first thing that comes to mind is to honor your children. Um, Meet them where they're at, not where you want them to be, but where they are, and honor that and validate them, validate them for their emotions. And if they do something wrong, just because you validate their emotions for being angry doesn't mean that you're accepting the behavior or the action that they did. You're just accepting you know, how they felt when they were doing it so you can help them make a better decision the next time. So if you honor and validate your child um, and, and are able to make them feel safe and comfortable and loved, that's going to go a long way just with that in itself. Um, and also something that I always recommend to, you know, going back as a play therapist and as a mom, something I really treasure is spending that one-on-one time with your child, some dedicated time where, unless you're doing something like video games, right? But if you're not, you know, turning the TV off, turning your phone off, um, and, and just spending even just 30 minutes once a week with your child and more than just the regular stuff, right? More than just cleaning the house, going to the grocery store. I mean, you can do all those things all the time and you can be together a lot, but I'm talking about intentional, mindful time with your child to let them pick an activity where they can choose, you know, but you know, within reason, you know, you can't go to Disneyland every day, but you know, you can, it doesn't even have to cost money. You can just go to the park or take a hike um, outside or something, but really just to spend that one-on-one time with just one parent and one child. And if you have more than one child, you can switch off. Or if there's more than one caregiver in the home, you can, you know, switch off and they can have dad time and mom time and whoever. Um, But to really spend that mindful time with them to, and it doesn't even, you don't have to talk about anything serious. You can just talk about, the random things you see on your hike. You can just talk about, um, you know, the person that was in line in front of you at In-N-Out Burger or whatever it is. Um, Just keep the conversation going and that will go such a long way. So when your child does misbehave and does something wrong, you're able to make a repair quicker with them. You're able to um, probably have them regulate quicker. You know, if they're like in a heightened state and they're having a meltdown and they're super angry and they're hitting the wall or they're doing something like that. Um, if you have that strong attachment bond with them already, that when you say, Hey, the way you're acting right now is not okay. Let's, let's have you calm down for a few minutes and then let's talk about it and let's make a repair. And then that's when they can come back and say, I'm sorry, you know, for doing this. And I'm, I'm going to fix the wall that I, you know, the, the hole that I just made when I punched the wall and I'm going to fix that. And then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do differently next time. Those kind of conversations don't happen to the parent that's not connected to their child. So it kind of comes full circle of going back to what I originally said is honoring your child, validating them for for how they're feeling, being open to communicating with them, meeting them where they're at, and and then just spending time one-on-one, isolated, 
integrated time with them where it's very intentional and mindful, where they are the center of, of the universe for that 30 minutes a week, um, where bills and more, you know, mortgages and all those things don't come into play. It's it, the stress gets taken away and it actually helps the parent too at the same time. It's a win-win for everybody. Oh, this has been such a tremendous amount of information. I know I have listened to it live but I probably will go back and listen to it again once you release this episode because there are so many good nuggets in here and so many wonderful reminders and active things that we as parents can do to help our children. And um, I'm so grateful for your expertise and for sharing it with everybody through this podcast. And um, congratulations again on a year. What a wonderful accomplishment. Dr. Kim, tell everybody where they can find you and how they can follow you. you. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, because this may be their first time listening. You never know. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. Um, and it's like a diamond in the rough. Um, so they can find me on my website. I Theparentologist.com is my website. And I have a blog there and all sorts of different advice. If you go in the search um, section on my blog, you can probably search most things. And I probably have a blog about it. Um, they can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Parentologist. I'm also on TikTok, actually. Yay. Um, <laughs> um, that's also at the parentologist. I think I think I'm at the parentologist at everything except for uh, Twitter because it wasn't available and so and it wasn't it was too long. So it's um, dr parentologist at Twitter. Uh, if you're on Twitter for some reason, I'm not as not as um, into Twitter as I am on Instagram or Facebook, but I am over there. If, if you do use that platform, I do post there, um, you know, periodically. So, but I'd love for you to reach out. Obviously you can subscribe to this podcast and um, listen to more episodes. I have a lot of, a lot of great episodes coming up um, for year two that I can't wait to share. And yeah, I just, I just love the community of it. I love connecting with, with other moms and other parents and just sharing in the things that we go through and just so they don't feel alone. And so they have other resources and some tools in their back pocket. Well, thank you, Dr. Kim. And thank you for letting me take over the reins and um, have this wonderful conversation with you. And everybody, please tune in for season two. We can't wait to see what's next. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.